You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I've got Stuart Thomason. Welcome to Max's Island, Stuart. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Tony. It's nice to be here. Stuart, on Max's Island, we hear stories from our guests about those times in their lives where they've perhaps made a decision to do something just for themselves or where in their working life or just in their life in general, they have a bit of a revelation about how things should be or things could be different. At what point in your life have you had one of those experiences where you thought "Mm, maybe things could change or I have a different thought about how something should be? It's it's interesting. So I I left university about 2000 uh, or so. Um, I went travelling for a bit and I decided I'd come back and run my own company as a social entrepreneur. I spent four years building a music um, business and thought I was the new Richard Branson, if you if you like. And then four years into building a really successful promotion business, record label, etc., I, I, I spectacularly crashed that business. So it's always been interesting to me to unpick the rationales to to why. So the moment of revelation was when I realised that business was going bankrupt, and I was personally exposed to uh, debt as well as a lot of personal reflections around how that could have been better I had people I employed that I had to let go I was admitted into a mental health ward in Sheffield which is where the business was started so I was officially titled as uh, sectioned under the mental health act which all sounds very dramatic but there's within that comes revelations around you know, reflections thereafter around how do you stop other entrepreneurs from um, experiencing those same uh, the same pain as that. So that takes a bit of rebuilding personally and obviously some good medical help and therapy along the way. But the, that revelation is then a really interesting point just to stop and think and say, actually, this, there's, a, there's a better way of building healthy businesses and I need to do some research into that. That, that was the point. Stuart? Was that the first business that you had founded or were you a serial founder? That was the first one I had founded. I did a couple at the same time. They kind of ran concurrently, but that was my first business startup, yeah. 
So obviously the emotional input was incredibly high. And yep. I'm assuming you threw your, your heart and soul and, and all your money into that business. So to Absolutely. see it bail after a period of time, and during that period of time, those those years, were there periods of success or was it always a grind? No, absolutely. It was, there was a period of phenomenal success. We'd captured a moment in in kind of a nightclub setting where we'd run two or three nights that were very successful. We expanded to um, three different cities across the UK and we did some international festivals in Valdezere in France and bits and bobs. So we were not, not, I wouldn't quite describe myself as feeling I was king of the hill, but I wasn't far off feeling that as, um, you know, this is the era of Gatecrasher and um, house music. And we were promoting something different in kind of hip hop and world music, live events, as well as club nights. We were trying to do things slightly differently um, in terms of adding a certain ethos and value to nightclub world. So we were, it was, it's just a fascinating uh, time to reflect on because for three years we we did really well. And we had, at one point, we had about 15 people employed under the organisation. Um, we had probably about another 20 or so connected to us in, in freelance roles, whether that's sound engineers or people that are on the affiliate side. If we had a training arm to a, the club night, so we would train sound engineers and DJs to get skills in the music industry, um, working with a few creative agencies. So we tried to expand the business format because we knew that club nights were quite fickle so they're always going to be um slightly at the whim of the popular culture but what what could we do to try and build some other ways of raising money that's what i was passionate about particularly in sheffield because sheffield was a uh, just coming out of a steel industry you know recession and was building itself back up as a creative city so all the bands and music that were coming out of sheffield was fascinating and they were building their own kind of institutional pillars in the city around the creative industries quarter so we were very much part of that thinking to try and reimagine um, what Sheffield could be so there was a few arms to it and uh, yeah certainly good periods of uh, success which I look back on with great fondness because as a first business startup in a few years we we, we thought we'd made it um, in all honesty um, but you suddenly, you suddenly learn that the confidence of, of youth was a bit misplaced but anyway. So tell me about the headwinds then that you faced that caused you to close the business down and, and you personally to have been challenged mentally yeah I mean the, the the basic rule of business still still very much rings in my ears about it now is to keep your eye on cash flow and and cash flow is king so we'd put a lot of money into three different club nights at the same time and two of and one, one was in Sheffield was our main driver of the business so when that wasn't doing so well and we were quite student market orientated at, at one point then we'd we just lost the cash injection and so then we had to make a decision do we borrow money from one club to subsidize the other which we did because we thought that was the right decision to take so we had concurrent nights running on fridays and saturdays and then the other night didn't work as well so we ended up kind of it's that lesson of putting good money after bad if you like so then you, you're looking at borrowing money to pay people. Because I was quite passionate that the people that were in our supply chain, the DJs, the musicians, the people that I employed, didn't suffer. So you you take, you know, and I think most entrepreneurs do this, to be honest. That's not just me, where the, you, people, you pay the people that allow you to deliver the work and then you take a bit of personal uh, hit yourself and then you borrow debt or borrow money to create business and then it ends up being debt and then that's the story into personal bankruptcy because the business was built on my own liability therefore me and my 
business partner who ran it together, but we had separate companies that was the structure. So therefore you're exposed to the kind of the, the world of um, just the, well, the reality, as I, as I say it, which is that suddenly the money runs out and you haven't got the income that you thought you had because it's quite a seasonal business. So we'd, we would always plan really well ahead because we knew that summer and winter were quite quiet, but going into autumn, we put quite a bit of investment into it and it, it just didn't work. So you you have to kind of just, you kind of accept your fate that it's not going to work. And then that's what caused the uh, the realisation that the business was going under. And then as, as somebody like me, I like to try and fix people's problems quite a lot. So I'm, I've got a natural tendency to then scurry around and try and do something else to bring money in and that didn't work either so therefore you you end up burning yourself out in in all uh, you know in all of it so the the what uh, the music industry training side of it which was cross subsidizing some of it just didn't the money the grant from the council didn't come in as quickly as you wanted it um to for bureaucracy reasons and other things and actually that's on me that was on me because i was over kind of over egging the pudding i think is the expression here you're saying like all this could help one thing before the other thing comes in. Actually, if you haven't built a sustainable business, that all comes down at once and that's what happens. So since that moment and since the reason why I do business um, coaching as well as I lead an organisation now is, is for that reason to try and help people think through those scenarios that might appear two or three years into running um, a business, if you like. And personally, you said you faced some challenges. Was that a good opportunity for you to reflect, take time out to understand how you acted in certain situations and allowed you to um, recover? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a tough time. It was a, it was a painful time. My diagnosis was one of psychosis, which was, you know, it, you know, it's hard to frame and get a diagnosis as a mental health condition, but it also meant I could get the right support for that particular condition because business failure hadn't led to um, depression at all it was a very different symptom it was one more of like a you know high you, you, as a high performance person myself you're susceptible to triggers that make you run a bit fast and therefore you can be a little manic in your behavior and then sometimes that has negative effects on the people around you and that's what I was reflecting on during that time so there's about a six month period of my recovery uh, firstly in Sheffield uh, Hospital and then back at my kind of you know family home I was lucky enough to have a really supportive family that I could go back to and kind of regroup and with family and friends just um, start to kind of realise kind of what had happened and then as I went back to Sheffield again start to kind of rebuild uh, things in a bit different way so get, you know I remember the um I remember my mum and dad both both saying at the time go and get a proper job because that will help with your recovery because it's nine to five and that routine will we do do you well and, and actually it's quite interesting because routine routine isn't isn't that good for me in terms of nine to five because I get bored so it's quite interesting then that I ended up you know with a few jobs at the time but partly to repay debt which I did I spent a year and um, just working really hard just to make sure my finances were were back in order and then take some lessons there about how you can work hard but you should always be saving money at the same time so those that, that reflective time was really useful and I had a really good therapist at the time to guide me on some of the the thinking there so I, I felt incredibly lucky to have some space to unpack that as well as the ability to then retrain there was a charity called it was called Regen School at the time they were in Sheffield and they were helping community groups set up um, business ideas and they were looking for events management 
experience and trainers and they took me under their arm and then trained me up to be a business coach um, over the period of three or four years so I did my qualifications with them so actually part of my rebuilding um, exercise that was for me incredibly helpful was that kind of and um, the, the reflections I had as an entrepreneur could be put into some context then with some professionals around me about saying well where, where were the mistakes made with your business that led to the health issues as well as the business issues and what would you then do to train and coach and build the capacity of others so they didn't do that? So it was a really interesting time in those three years just to kind of think when I then give business advice to people, how do we root that in? And I found it incredibly useful when I was kind of rebuilding that to, to, to root quite a bit of it in personal experience because I found that social entrepreneurs would listen uh, really readily because it was a very real story that, you know, the crash and burn that it's very evident in social entrepreneurship. Um, it was there as a real life case study of it but I also had some good tips on how people might avoid it with some thinking more holistically about themselves as well as building teams yeah I listened to your story so far the opportunity for post-traumatic growth seems to have occurred in, in, in two ways one you clearly mentioned and quite proudly that you you worked hard for a year or more restoring your financial position paying off yep. debts and achieving some sort of status quo and then secondly, the notion that you actually use that experience as a tool to be able to educate, inform others, and to lead a bit of a, a direction for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think when we all go through those stressful situations, it's very easy to look backwards, continue to look at the carnage perhaps that's been left behind, um, as opposed to looking for the opportunities and the the things that can help you look forward and, and take strength through a problem achieving some sense of normality afterwards and then being able to create a new direction and, and perhaps fire up some new passions so it appears you got then into the not-for-profit space in a big way Sorry. and yeah. and you also had mentioned the ability to use your lived experience to gain traction with other social entrepreneurs and others that were were perhaps facing some of the challenges that you had faced. Did you feel like you'd sort of found your place in life? Absolutely, yeah. No, I'd, I'd found, I used the word calling quite quite happily in that, yeah. when I was at that time, yeah. It's, always, it's, it's interesting because you reflect on your own personal experience, but with it, if coming out of that you find your personal purpose and then it's it's really quite a phenomenal moment for self because you realize what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life and so out of that first experience of mental health and that lived experience made me being able to put something back to you know to, to make the world a better place through the not-profit structure for sure but also to help coach other businesses that are helping people achieve and that can be commercial or non-commercial um or not for you know not for profit and commercial profit etc that could be a real mix because I, I like people to support people on their journey to their own sense of, of purpose so as a coach you you know that's a natural part of it and then as a business kind of capacity builder helping people build those more sustainable models so it's not just about their their own purpose but you're building a collective purpose and mission and impact that's really powerful so if I can be part of that and I, I tend to work a lot of the smaller side of, of startups. So when people are employing their first one to 20 people, so I can be, I, I realize that that's my 
also my, my happy space, if you like, in that calling setting, because there's other people that can do scale and stuff better than, than me. But the that building that early team and, and forming good exit strategies was something that I, I particularly found a lot of helping, mainly because of my own personal um, experience that then grounds that. So I was lucky enough to work as a coach at Unlimited, for, which was the foundation for social entrepreneurs here in the UK for about five years, um, kind of not quite honing the art. I'll never be quite that um, bold to say that I got it right, but actually just, you know, coaching entrepreneurs on a really regular basis was, an, was a real joy. So the personal experience and then the, the rooting into the charity sector led to a really great kind of career path in, in London and working with a lot of entrepreneurs at Unlimited, yeah. I think there's a paradox there that confuses people when they look at entrepreneurs in general, but in particular social entrepreneurs who not only put their money, but often put a philosophical passion and heart and soul into the business or the entity that they're creating. And you can look at them and say, well, that's their passion. So therefore that's their, they're the single one driver of that organization. But through your lived experience, you perhaps understand that that isn't the answer and that the more that somebody is driven, probably the more that they need support, yeah. whether that be peers who are fellow social entrepreneurs or somebody like yourself with that lived experience who can, and, and as you mentioned, it's not all about telling them how to do, set up their business differently. It's about how to cope with personal challenges, personal expectations, the expectation of growth, the expectation of trying to solve the world problems and all of those things and, and, and managing that in a way that keeps them mentally sound you know, so that they can fulfil their passion. Exactly, exactly. And the, the expression my old um, mentor would use a lot was the, the dark night of the social entrepreneur when it's quite a lonely space leading a, an organization and those reflections when if you're often on your own and it's painful and you're, you're having those personal reflections actually making sure you've got somebody to help guide you through that dark night is really critical because too many people do that alone and the it, it, it it's it's hard for people to really think that through themselves so that's the role of coaches or mentors or you know peer supporters or however, however you want to frame your own personal ecosystem of support it's really important that you build that into it so my you know my role is uh, it's one part of of people building an organization um but my other job is to also point out where there's some other fabulous support avenues and where people can get inspiration from other um people to you know to make sure that they've got the the right balance of um people uh, helping them personally and professionally in their organization because there's an awful lot of focus on growth and and finance and the the slight obsession that that comes with you know running a business and particularly as a social entrepreneur which is quite you know it's quite a it seems quite a sexy industry to work in because you're, you're changing the world and you're living your your passion but unless you're looking after yourself then it's it's unbalanced therefore you're you're at risk so we you meet more you know you're, you're You've got to navigate, help people navigate their that vulnerability that they find themselves in. Stuart, you explained your situation after your organisation folded mm-hmm. and you've hinted at that it's a real passion at the moment for you to provide that support, that mental health support to entrepreneurs and, and people and allow them to build ecosystems around themselves for a little bit of protection as well as just the 
the sheer value of having other voices and other support providing input. What are you seeing at the moment? And perhaps you can articulate some of your passion around that. I mean, in my, in my current role uh, leading a small charity, the kind of endeavours or pro- projects around at the moment to try and help people think about mental health in the workplace. There's some big campaigns here in the, the UK that um, a few mental health charities like Rethink uh, Together and Mind uh, collectively ran some time ago, which was to it was called Time to Change. And it was one of the the big awareness raising campaigns here in the UK. It went globally too, but it was predominantly here because it was because of the funding model about giving people space and, and giving teams um, space to talk about mental health in the in the workplace. What's been lovely to see is how some of that work's expanded into really good practice in terms of protecting staff and and you know there's some legal advantages to working in the UK because some of that's protected in law through um, just a equality that so if people present themselves with um, conditions there's reasonable adjustments that need to be made and, and work plans to do so there's a more formal routes that people can build tools for their organizations to protect their staff and give them the space and the flexibility they need to to you know to, to be um the best they can be as an employee as well as a, I think the, the phrase might be like a flourishing human or in, and that team dynamic is really important there I think for me it goes a step further as well it's about how you create the the openness because a lot of those conversations will happen between a line manager and an employee if you're in a in a formal setting and therefore there's a there's a little bit of a culture of secrecy around it because that's seen as a hidden conversation because it's very personal to that individual and it and it is and it's it's I I just take a slightly different approach to it very very you know calmly and, and looking after people's interests to say actually as a group and as a team, can we talk about our strengths and the positive side? So some things are very confidential about mental health, for sure. But when you're talking about team strength and well-being, that should be a group conversation, particularly if you run a small team. And how can you help support each other to make sure that the onus isn't on one person or another in a team to deliver? So there's some really nice uh, tools around leadership and kind of co- collective leadership or collaborative leadership I think some of the expressions are where you're trying to take the the natural you know position of power and ego that comes with a CEO and trying to build that across the team and I particularly use strength finder as one of the tools to help people look at their own strengths and how they develop that and I find that a very positive experience for that kind of collective and um, building a, approach to a, a healthier team and there's some, there's some good forward-thinking organisations that are starting to embed that practice in their organisations in the charity sector in particular, but it's slow change. So my personal passion is to try and um, say, well, I've experienced uh, lived experience. My team all know about my lived experience in mental health, and I've had a recent episode which took me out of my team for a couple of weeks too. So that's a very real and a very recent conversation with the team to say everybody suffers and therefore some you know if you identify some of your traits of your own mental health and you take a couple of weeks off you know that can lead to positive change in the organization too but you have to be quite gentle with that but if you are in a position like I am where you can lead different methods and approaches to a supporting team then being open about that conversation really does incredible things to the team dynamic if you're in a good place as a, as a team which we are um because it means my personal passion to create and embed some of those processes at board level and across the sector as an infrastructure organization. You know, we've got influence there to say 
this is what good mental health practice looks like. Let's have a conversation about it. And then let's others take some of the tools and experience to improve the kind of quality of the team for them, their own organization. That's, you know, as is appropriate to that organizational culture, et cetera. So um, I'm not a crusader. Like I'm, you know, the only way is my way uh, to do it. It's just, there's a, there's a certain way we've done it, which has built a healthier team, which I find it's quite nice reflecting on that at the moment, particularly towards the end of the year and Christmas and going into new year where the focus will be on well-being and um and growth for us as an organization we spend a month reflecting on that that's a really important way into that conversation is to have the um that openness before christmas we wrap things up well but then we'll open the dialogue again for people setting good practices for the year ahead uh, so to speak so it's probably another long long answer to a, a simple question but uh, i kind of wanted to give you a kind of richness of of how we approach it as well as the fact that in the uk there's, there's a lot of organizations that are working together to promote that change to what I feel quite fortunate that there's a, a number of other sector leaders that are kind of leading the charge and that some of the policy work that is required to change the law as well as um, the practice because there's still an awful lot of um, uh, bad behavior in charities where people are abu- you know, abusing power but also just um, exploiting staff for working too hard because the impact is so powerful that sometimes the team culture can over- overpower them for people's personal uh, well-being and I, at the moment in our sector, whether it's post, I mean, I think it's partly post-COVID, but also the shortage of funding that's around. There's some very, very real challenges there where people are burning out quicker than I've seen for a long time. And therefore that's having consequences of people leaving uh, long-term posts in organisations and also organisations are finding it very hard to recruit at the moment. And I think there's a few things at play there from people's um, mental health, which is a kind of sector leader is, is really interesting to re- reflect on at the moment because that leads to some quite big tra- trends and challenges for our members because team capacity is key and the people are really struggling at the moment. Um, so we're, de- we're developing some new tools on leadership and um, kind of that kind of peer support approach next year. But these are, it's tough to to get it all going. So it's, um, yeah, there's a journey to be travelled with that next year for us, yeah. So just as we wind up your journey to Max's Island, and I must thank you for introducing us to such a really interesting topic, and in particular, thank you for being so open about your lived experience, and and that gives the richness and value to our conversation. You talked about the start of the year having an opportunity in your organisation to have a reflection, point of reflection. What's your hope for 2023? in terms of the stakeholders you work with? And is it about continuing to change their mindset in the first instance, or actually feeling like you want to actually make some significant change? That's a, that's a great question, I have to say. Um, my big one for next year is around collaboration and doing it properly. So I, I won't affect change by just shouting at other organisations around their mental health. That's just going to be me shouting into the void, really. And, and to be honest with you, quite rightly, people have got better things to listen to than that. And so I've, I'm convinced and we've spent a year collaborating with another big you know, sector organisation here in the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. And that, that's an official partnership. So we work together to deliver joint training and what's been fascinating about that is a lot of people look at us and say well you're you're exactly the same organization just NCBO are bigger FSI are smaller you both deliver training to the sector so why don't you kind of 
there's an efficiency to working together, but we're, we're very different organisations with very different philosophies. And uh, we, we're seen as supporting a certain type of small charity, whereas NCPA will support all charities. So, you, but actually in the last year, by working together, we've kind of in, not quite incubated ourselves within NCVA, but in part we have, it's just not official. And therefore we can give them some uh, fresh, innovative thinking and a bit more kind of straight to impact rather than lots of bureaucracy process, which is really good for their sense of action and the culture of change. So their CEO is, I mean, fabulous individual, Sarah Vibert, and she's you know, led a certain organisational change. And some of that energy has come from that, that partnership by her own words. On the flip side, we learn a lot about looking after us staff better because they've got better simply got better HR processes and practices and good support networks and much more extensive reach into volunteers so next year I I really hope that that partnership deepens to a, a level where we're formally uh, inside their organization working as that kind of innovation house type thing and that because we're changing our structure to be a lot more social entrepreneurship led because in, in terms of our traded income and then together we can have a collective voice which is going to be much louder and much more powerful than two membership organizations just kind of talking about it so doing a lot more collect, um, joint um, press work and policy work and insight reports so we're, we're committed to do a year's worth of um, insight reports together uh, which will then it hopefully and this is the big hope so we'll, we'll watch this space in a year's time but you hope then encourage others to get behind some of those reports as well and say like what does true collaboration look like? Because that should challenge leaders like me to say, well, is my job required if there's several charities doing a similar thing? You really, you probably only need one leader. Um, you just need a really active delivery team. And therein lies some, well, that's some challenging thinking for, for me, but also it's challenging for the sector to say, we, we can do things a little bit differently here and be a bit more collaborative and have each other's back. Um, it doesn't have to be, always on one or two organizations to lead that so there's going, to, there's going to be some polite challenge to our sector from us but we're only tiny so we'll see if we'll see what happens but um that's the big hope yeah collaboration is key i have a, a bit of a mantra of collaborate or die and i think that's very real with our sector at the moment and i'm sure it's the same in australia at the moment too is if if you're not really truly collaborating and joint delivering and sharing value if you're going to have a very struggle you're going to struggle um at the moment and it's a tough world and together you're much stronger than trying to fly the flags solo and I, I say the same thing to individual entrepreneurs who have very similar kind of philosophy there's like join up because uh, the world needs uh, collective thinking at the moment rather than individualism but we'll, we'll see where that goes but you, you asked for the big a big thought so that's one we'll see how we go. Stuart thanks very much for um, sharing your story your personal story but also giving us a real insight into you know the, the, the cutting edge environment in in social entrepreneurship and and charities in in the uk and good luck in 2023 thanks for being on the island thanks for taking the time tony much appreciated we spoke on the bus on the way home from work he was lost in the details of life each day was a blur, oh work and no play And how, how it had turned out this way He told me his plan, a short-term escape Five weeks 
Tracks on the bibbling track Go it alone No one to blame If he finished Or fell by the way Oh, no. 